All right, all right. Welcome to the Cavus Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog of the murk, shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cavus Ships Podcast, sponsored by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner, supporting all services in all domains, and America's only builder of nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. HII, delivering the advantage. Coming up, 2023 in review, we're joined by the entire gang from USNI News to look back at some of the biggest and most significant naval developments of the past year. Chief Editor Sam Legrone, Deputy Editor Mallory Shelbourne, and journalist Heather Mongilio will also let us in on what they expect to see in 2024. But first, a look at some of this week's naval news. Responding to a series of attacks from Houthi forces in Yemen using missiles and unmanned aerial vehicles, the United States on December 19th declared the formation of Operation Prosperity Guardian to protect international shipping passing through the Southern Red Sea and the Bab el-Mandeb Strait. The operation is under the overall command of the existing U.S.-led Combined Maritime Force in the Mideast region, and in particular, Combined Task Force 153, charged with security in the Red Sea to the Gulf of Aden. A number of major international shipping companies, including Maersk, Apag Lloyd, CGM, MSC, and others, stopped allowing their ships to pass through the Bab el-Mandeb and instead began rerouting ships around Africa, adding thousands of miles, dozens of days, and millions of dollars to each voyage. Implementation of Prosperity Guardian, however, has proved problematic, with most nations balking at U.S. plans and others declining to send ships or take part at all. As this podcast is being recorded, the future remains cloudy, but there have been no significant Houthi attacks on shipping since the last incidents reported on December 18th. The destroyer USS The Sullivans transited the Strait of Gibraltar December 17th to enter the Mediterranean Sea, one of several destroyers on single deployments that are bolstering U.S. forces in the 6th and 5th fleets in Europe and the Mideast. Earlier destroyers, Delbert D. Black and Laboon, also arrived in the region. The Laboon passed southbound through the Suez Canal December 21st to take up station in the Red Sea. The Senate on December 20th was finally able to confirm the last 11 four-star admirals and generals awaiting confirmation, held up for much of 2023 by Alabama Republican Tommy Tuberville, who dropped his holds on the nominations as the Senate closed out the year. Across the services, three- and four-star flag and general officers are finally being allowed to take office, in turn freeing up nearly 400 other officers who were in temporary command. Among Navy swearings in this week was that of Admiral Bill Houston to become the new Director of Naval Reactors and Vice Admiral Brendan McLean as the new Commander of Naval Service Forces. The aircraft carrier USS Harry S. Truman left Norfolk Naval Shipyard December 17th to return to Norfolk Naval Station, completing a year-long overhaul. The ship will enter the earliest stages of the readiness cycle to prepare for an upcoming deployment. For the moment, the move leaves only USS John C. Stennis among the U.S. Navy's 11 aircraft carriers currently in shipyard hands. Stennis is at Newport News Shipbuilding in the midst of a major four-year refueling complex overhaul, or RCOH. In Britain, 
The Royal Navy declared initial operating capability for the Naval Strike Missile, now fitted aboard the Type 23 frigate Somerset. Developed by Norway's Kongsberg Defense and Aerospace, the service-to-surface -surface NSM will replace Harpoon missiles in the British fleet. The IOC, announced December 19th, came just two weeks before the last of the Harpoons is removed from British warships. Britain plans to fit 11 frigates and destroyers with an NSM, which is also in service with the U.S. Navy and the navies of Norway and Poland. Another dozen navies already have declared their intention to adopt the weapon. In new ship news, Austral USA on December 21st received an $868 million award from the U.S. Navy to build three expeditionary medical ships. The EMSs are based on Austral's Spearhead-class expeditionary fast transport design. Two of the ships have already been named, the Bethesda, EMS-1, and Balboa, EMS-2. The third and last ship is expected to be completed by May 2030. And the Boeing-built Orca, or XLUUV Extra Large Unmanned Undersea Vehicle, was delivered to the U.S. Navy on December 20th. The autonomous diesel-electric craft, designated XLE-0, is to be used as a test asset. The XLUUV program originally envisioned the test craft plus five more hulls, but severe delays and cost overruns led to the cancellation of other vessels for now. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. All right, we'll move to the discussion portion of the show. As we mentioned at the top, we are very happy to be joined by three uh, key members of the USNI News, Sam Legrone, Mallory Shelburne, and Heather Mongilio, um, to help us go through 2023, uh, talk about what caught their attention, uh, and then look a little bit to 2024 about what we should be tracking for the new year. Um, Sam, I'll start with you. What uh, what were some of the things that, and it doesn't necessarily have to be in chronological order, but what stood out to you over the last year from a maritime standpoint? Lack of momentum, I believe. I think I would start there because we're repeating ourselves over and over and over again, sort of on the naval sphere in terms of like, hey guys, we got a plan. We need to come up with an idea. We need to come up with a shipbuilding plan. We need to come up with, you know, sort of a direction forward. As far as all that stuff went, pretty much kind of the only thing that I saw really was some real serious movement on the submarine side in terms of this agreement with Australia and the UK and the US for submarine stuff. But, you know, amphibious production is stalled. Um, I think there's a lack of, Kind of vision for the Navy in terms of what it wants to look like going forward. Um, you have to give new uh, CNO Lisa Franchetti the benefit of the doubt, however, because um, you know her, uh, she was supposed to be in the job in August. Uh, she just got there because of the whole uh, Tommy Tuberville uh, end block holds. But really, I mean, this kind of felt like a placeholder year in terms of you know, sort of real momentum moving forward into kind of figuring out of what like a 21st century Navy looks like. Mallory, over to you. Uh, you. You can either continue that thread or kind of throw something else out there that caught your attention. You did spend a fair amount of time in uh, Indo-PACOM, um, kind of traveling around. Um, you, you know, what what did you see either there or elsewhere that caught your attention? Real quick, I just want to say I agree with almost everything Sam said, but I would disagree with one portion of it, if I may. I think the, well, I think Sam's right that it feels like a placeholder budget and year for the Navy when it comes to acquisition. 
But I think we're in this habit of like every year that's what happens. And we say it every year, we see it play out every year, and we always think the next year is going to be better. And I think that I think the Navy is just having a really tough time with um, all the internal budget dynamics that are going on in the Pentagon. So I just wanted to put that out there because like, I think I agree with what Sam said, but I think that it's um, a little more, I don't want to say more complicated, but I think it's, it's more troublesome for the Navy than I think, um, you know, we might think, cause you know, this is the Biden administration's third uh, or wait, second, this was their first like full fit up that they put out. So, you know, they had the chance to really make the mark. And I think the Navy was in a tough place because they have to buy a lot of things and they don't have um, necessarily all the money they need to do it. But um, if that makes sense, but I think uh, on the Westpac stuff, um, I think something I experienced out there was that, um, you know, the holds on that Tuberville had really did have a, pretty drastic effect on the services. And I, I think we know that, but, it, you know, being out there and seeing how it impacted everybody was pretty, um, I think, telling just so many folks were stuck and couldn't move into their jobs. And, you know, people were in placeholder jobs. And, um, you know, I think the the trickle down effect of that um, reality was was very obvious everywhere I went, where I saw the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Marine Corps. Heather, over to you. Um, what grabbed your attention um, in 2023? Or feel free to jump in on uh, the the thread that uh, Sam and Mallory have been pulling on. I think we should talk about the Black Sea and the use of unmanned aerial vehicles by a Ukraine to really go after the Russian Navy. I think that's something that the United States could take some lessons from, is what people say in terms of just how they were able to use drones in ways that the United States aren't isn't quite doing. Uh, of course, we can't forget about what's going on with the Red Sea, which has really um, taken up a lot of my attention since October. And then the other thing uh, that's always kind of in the back of my mind uh, since I cover personnel is what's going to happen with the Navy going forward since they missed their recruiting goals and they have even bigger recruiting goals for the next year. And, you know, it's great if they have all the ships and the, they get everything that they want, but if they don't have the people to put on the ships... Those ships are pretty much useless. So, and I don't know what they're going to do right now to try to adjust for all the gaps at seas that they're seeing. Sam, I I agree with you that it was largely a placeholder year, but I guess if if the Navy was my um was my sports team, I would say they kind of peaked at the right point in the year. Um, I I, I guess as somebody that has maybe been hard on the Navy in the past have been uh, heartened by um, what I've seen um, out of um, the units that have been operating in the Med and operating in the Persian Gulf. Um, and so I guess I, I feel a little bit better about 23 now after seeing that and hearing more about it than I did at the beginning of the year. Are you guys hearing and feeling the same way or am I just a, a bit of a homer uh, on that? I, I think there's something to be said there in terms of when you look at short-term operational effectiveness, the Navy doesn't disappoint in their ability to be able to um, marshal all of the formations that they were able to do in the Eastern Mad and in the Red Sea and in the Persian Gulf and in the North Arabian Sea in response to October 7th. That's pretty 
good. And that's always something that the Navy's able to pull out. What I don't see a good long-term range for, or I'm sorry, what I don't see a, a clear view for is the kind of the long range effects of those deployments on the service writ large. I think um, we've been talking about it a lot. I think Politico had a story on it. Um, no one will say for certain, but there's a there's a implied uh, expenditure of a ton of SM2s to go after these little drones. Uh, and the cost calculation is is kind of in the wrong end when you have a multi-million dollar missile taking out um you know uh, a six figure or five or six figure drone so that that becomes a, a larger question as to okay you can do all of this stuff now and i don't think anybody ever really had that question so when we have this kind of doom and gloom conversation about the future of the navy it's never about are they effective now the answer is is they will always be effective now with the infrastructure that they have that got built up mostly sort of in the late 90s right now. I think I think the question is what happens number one when you run out of munitions, right? And you don't have any backfill from that, you know, uh stuff that was built in the 90s. And then number two, what are the platforms of the future going to look like? Where are your answers in terms of drones? Where are your answers in terms of new platforms? Where are your answers in terms of sort of these epic shipbuilding programs that are take forever to craft and to formulate. So yeah, you have to, ha there's some dynamism there and kind of have to, you know, think about the overview and the the overview and the outlook there. But in the short term, yeah, I think, you know, you're honestly, I think uh, if I had any kind of, uh, uh, you know, guess, I think the Navy would want to talk more about what's going on in the Red Sea right now. And I think a lot of that information is getting filtered through OSD right now. And you're not hearing about it that much, but like, you know, I think if I were, you know, in charge of information in the Navy, I'd be screaming from the rooftops. It was like, look at what these these kids are doing out there. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a good point. And it does. I think it plays into the concern that Heather raised about recruiting. I, I mean, I, I think I would, you know, not only would I want to do it simply because um, it's the right thing to do and it makes sense from a budget standpoint. But given the fact that I miss my recruiting numbers, I, I mean, that's probably the best recruiting uh, commercial that they could get is mm -hmm. to show what those uh, men and women are doing. Heather, are you getting any sense of, um, you, you know, that, that there's a, a, I guess, a yearning from recruiting to, you know, better tell the story or better highlight the wins from the operational Navy? In a way, they're always talking about how they want to better tell the Navy's story and how they want to better be able to sell the Navy uh, as an employer for people who might be potentially interested in uh, getting recruited. And they always say no one wants to join the Navy to, to sit at a shore. Like they want to go out and see the world. That's why you join the Navy. So in that sense, like it would be, it is interesting to see that they aren't saying as much stuff because this is like a chance to go out and do something and you're getting deployed and you have a lot of ships out there right now. Uh, but Sam's right. It's it's getting all this information is getting filtered by the National Security Council and then through uh, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, even to the point where I sit on press calls all the time and they're not giving us a lot of information, I think, because they are told that they can't give out a lot of information. And if that's at the OSD level to get it down to the to the Navy levels, even harder. But yeah, it's probably a missed recruiting opportunity by both the Navy and the Marines, since the Marines are also out there. So one of the 
uh, if I'll jump in a little bit here, the, one of the great potential recruiting moves of the year, I think, was in the Army-Navy game. In the middle of it was a spirit spot from the destroyer USS Kearney, which has now become the famous destroyer USS Kearney. And you know, at the end, it, 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 it's, it's a nice 40-second spot produced by the ship. Uh, I were on board the Kearney. We're out serving here. They've been doing it for a while. They were coming through Suez. Boom, bam, 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 go some missile shots at the end. Nice big graphic. Car USS Kearney, 22 to 0, which was how would pre presumably how many targets they had taken out um, since the since uh, in, in the past few weeks. That provoked an absolutely instant positive response from all over the place. Yeah, 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 go team, go. Um, and include and also provoked a an, an instant. Um, who the hell released that from a few other people who were not pleased about it? The Navy actually went around some uh, some corners there to uh, to get that spot out. They didn't they didn't send everything through all the usual channels. You just put it together, sent it to CBS. CBS ran it. Um, Navy's chomping at the bit to get their message out. And as Heather just said, you know, the White House, the National Security Council, DOD are trying to soft pedal a lot of this stuff. And it's frustrating an enormous amount of people. Thousands of people are just incredibly frustrated. And I also think, you know, this this whole thing about, you know, your team peaking at the same at the right time. Um, a year ago, one of the big stories was presence matters. Does presence make a difference? And uh, Congress is trying to write that in, in, into the, uh, the Defense Authorization Act. And, and they did. But as opposed to the current dictum, which appears to be coming from the Deputy Secretary of Defense about everything in the budget has to has to deal with a kinetic response to China invading Taiwan. If it's not involved in that, then it's a it's a bill payer for something else. And problem is presence is not necessarily involved in a kinetic response to a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. And the Navy has never been. I mean, right now, as the Navy is everywhere. And this this whole demonstration about it that happened in October with two carriers show up in the in the Eastern Mediterranean operating together the usual all the usual photo op stuff that's really impressive they were going to do that anyway by the way there was going to be a an actual handoff with with a two carrier photo op then the Ford was going to come home of course the Gerald R Ford is still there after Dwight Eisenhower came out but days later what three days later two days later in the Western Pacific the USS Carl Vinson and the Ronald Reagan joined together for two carrier operations on opposite sides of the world. Four carriers deployed with full air wings. Nobody's no, Nobody can even can think of that. Nobody has that kind of power. And that was just kind of in the routine of things. That wasn't a direct response to a crisis. So this, but this, this, this ability to, 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 to project power, to project presence is never been on display more. The Red Sea, the destroyers in the Red Sea, are famous now. They're getting, I mean, the Navy's not pumping them up. They put out press releases. CENTCOM puts out a press release for three and mentions a ship, but everybody's keeping count. Everybody's watching. And the destroyers are out there doing what destroyers do. They're protecting other ships. And what, you know, this is the time for the Navy to be crowing about this, to be pointing out that we do this. The Army can't do this. The Air Force can't do this. The Navy can do this. And the, you know, if, if you want funding, if you want people to, to to support this operation, this is the time to do it. And yet there's still all this presence in the Western Pacific. 
that Mallory was out. Mallory spent two months out, out, out cruising around Westpac, very jealous, saw a lot of stuff from Singapore to Taiwan to Japan and all points in between. She was at sea. She was in the air. We're out there and we're doing it every single day. And, the you know, the we, we, I think we have five LCSs to patrol combat ships now deployed in the Western Pacific. We're operating uh, in concert with the Filipinos now. In the three, and be, because of all this uh, Chinese confrontation uh, in, in multiple areas from multiple entities, too. And the Navy's spread out. And, you know, it's right. There's going to be a bill payer to this. The Navy had eight aircraft carriers underway at the same time. That's unheard of. They have 11. Eight at the same time were screws turning underway. Various degrees of operational ability, uh, status, sure. But still... That's an unheard of number. And there's going to be a bill payer to pay for that. They're all going to have to come home and need, and need maintenance again at some point in two or three years. Same thing with, with uh, we have a surge of destroyers right now going out to the Red Sea in the Sixth Fleet. There's going to be a bill payer for that on the, on, the, on, the, on the back end. Managing all that, maintaining all that costs a lot of money. And you need facilities to do it. And this is the time to be pointing this stuff out. And I think that, that 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 that's really one of the major frustrations, Chris. I I would ask. I mean, and I mean, you you raise good points, and I, I'll ask Mallory since she did spend some time out there. Your view, Mallory, or your sense of what people thought? Uh, there, there's a group of people that say, "Hey, look, what's going on in Ukraine? What's going on in uh, the Med?" is a good warm-up, for lack of a better term, and a good um, opportunity for the U.S. Navy and the U.S. military to begin to think more about warfighting should there be higher-end competition in the Pacific. And then there's another group that says, hey, this is taking away focus from the Pacific. Um, And then there's the third group that says, hey, we got to be able to chew bubblegum and and walk at the same time, Um, I think, as uh, the Secretary of Defense said out at Reagan. Um, your your thoughts on how, how you know you sort of balance that and and has the Pacific lost a little bit of attention and, and do they need that attention as we go into 24? I, I think the strategy hasn't changed and the Pentagon has said as much. Um, I mean, going into 24, I, I think that there's no reason to believe that the strategy would change, especially given, you know, Taiwan has an election coming up in a few weeks and um that's that's going to be a huge uh, factor in in whatever we see that comes next. I think that, you know, we see a lot of these comparisons in I hear it from reporters asking questions. I hear it from officials who are talking to reporters. You know, the comparisons between Taiwan and Ukraine were the ones that we were hearing a ton of earlier this year um, before the the tragedy in Israel. But um, the, those comparisons I, I think that from what I learned when I was in Westpac, many of the folks I talked to felt like that comparison really missed the mark. And that's because to the folks in Taiwan who are looking at this problem, they see it as a completely different problem set than one that Ukraine has to figure out. You know, Ukraine can be resupplied in through Poland. Thailand, Taiwan is an island and they don't have that luxury and they have to consider a lot of other things like a blockade um you know the, the the terrain is completely different the weather is completely different i mean all of these things go into how to think about you know the military at least if it's a military um if president xi jinping were to to try to take taiwan 
militarily. Um, the one thing I did hear when I was in Taiwan that I thought was really, um, that, that was, that really resonated with me is that the comparison that I think Taiwanese see between Ukraine and their own situation is this will to fight in that the Ukrainians have shown the world that they have this will to fight and to keep their sovereign territory against an invader. And they've seen that the world has really rallied around them because probably because they have shown that will. And I think that people in Taiwan see that and they see that they will need to do the same thing. And I think that if something does happen and if there is a conflict over Taiwan, uh, I heard from several folks when I was there that, you know, they expect to go at it alone. They don't expect other countries to come in and, and fight for them against the Chinese. I, I want to ask Heather her view on 24, because I know that she has to go uh, shortly. Heather, what stories um, are, or issues are, are you tracking as you look ahead to the new year? So I think the Red Sea stuff is going to continue on to 2024. Uh, I'm, you know, it's been a little bit slower this week than it was last week, but I certainly don't think the Houthis are going to stop firing things at merchant ships. I think one of the things that is affecting maybe why it's slowing down a little bit is you have some major companies saying, fine, we're not going to send our ships through the Red Sea. We'll send them around and take the longer routes or we'll just pause shipping through that. Uh, so less ships to to fire at means less things that are being fired. Uh, so that definitely is something I'm going to keep my eye on. I'm going to continue to keep my eye on the Black Sea. Uh, I don't think that gets enough attention, especially what's happening with the unmanned uh, aerial vehicles or sorry, vessels out there. Um, just that has been a big thing that I think has gotten its attention taken away because of everything that's happening in the Red Sea, uh, especially when you move the the carrier strike group away from that area. And then uh, there's a lot of personnel issues. I think that we're going to have to keep an eye out on recruiting challenges are certainly going to be an issue. The Marines just hit their recruiting goal, so they're worried that this year they might not make it. Uh, the Navy has a huge recruiting gap that they're going to have to fill up and uh, trying to figure that out this year. I, they haven't really announced any uh, new initiatives so far, but I expect that once uh, the new year comes, we'll start seeing some more ways of them trying to get more people into the service. And of course, you always have different things like mental health um, and sexual assault that are going to be addressed probably throughout the year, especially as people talk about those as detracting from people wanting to, who might be interested in serving. Um, so they're going to have to start talking about mental health, especially if they want to get people into the service. I'll, uh, I'll throw it over to Sam uh, and Chris with, with this question. Um, th thank you, Heather. Uh, and thank you for, for joining us uh, for, for this discussion. Um, Sam, you mentioned uh, 23 as a bit of a lost year, um, and I, I saw Chris shaking his head a little bit. Um, really, for both of you, what do you need to hear from the new CNO or see in the new budget to kind of feel like that 24 would be off to a good start? Um, I mean, you know, that's a, I, I guess, I mean, I, I'm not looking necessarily for a laundry list, but I mean, are there a few themes that, that you'd want to hear from them that, that sort of show that, okay, 24 won't be that same last year. You could get really green eye shade with the budget and start to kind of parse and pick apart, like a lot of individual programs and money's going here versus money going there. I, I think 
what would be assuring to I think a lot of people who are paying attention to this stuff is to to come up with a vision for what the service is moving forward because it keeps getting caught in this dichotomy between being the joint maritime force as part of this big purple blob and then its own service independent with its unique military character that is different and has a different set of missions um, than the army or the air force or the space force. Um, some kind of intellectual center that says, Hey, this is how we are going to attack the problem of both maintaining uh U S presence um, as a deterrent. And then at the same time, also uh, having the potential energy to whoop as much ass as possible. And it's an intellectually, like it's a tough uh, problem to go and communicate. I think global force for good was probably the best glibest answer from the um, uh, Mike Mullen era. So that's kind of what I want to hear. But like, you know, when, when Admiral Greener um, was in charge of the Navy, uh, as the chief of naval operations, he came out with a very clear and distinct uh, sort of three kind of uh, lines uh, that he kind of communicated to all the sailors, which was uh, operate forward. Uh, oh, gosh, now I'm forgetting him. Um, be ready. Yeah, it was operation operate forward, be ready. And then there was a third one, which I am now forgetting. Uh, but it was it was it was a clear message to everybody. It was like, this is what we're going to do. Uh, that's what I want to hear from the CNO. I want I want the CNO to come out and say this is what we're about in a way that I can understand. Can yeah. I? We're, we're fighting first. Operate forward. Be that's ready. Right. Sorry, I had. A, we're fighting had first. Little... Operate forward. Be ready. Thank you. Can I add something to that? Um, so I think some of the things we talked about sort of all bring me back to to one question. We talked about the Red Sea and the Carney messaging and, you know, the Navy struggling to be able to, to tell its story with that and use that to its advantage to recruit sailors. And we talked about the lost year on the budget, which we've, like we said, talked about several times. Um, there, there's been budget infighting within the Navy, but also within the Pentagon. And I think it all comes back to how much control does the Navy really have over its budget, its strategy, and its message? And I think that's sort of the question that I have that is driving from from my perspective, I think, is driving some of these issues is we don't know how much control the Navy has over those things. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think they have very little. Uh, Kavis, your, your thoughts? Well, you've been on the inside of an awful lot of those debates, Mr. Cervello. Um, no, I mean, I think, you know, everybody's frustrated. It's just... Uh, I don't I I do not think that the senior leadership of the country and by the way this is not a party thing. I think I don't think the Republicans have a better idea than the Democratic administration. But I don't think that that this White House or the last or this Pentagon leadership really grasps the importance of sea power and what it can do and what it does every day not just when the bubble has gone up and World War 3 is 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 here but every day in front of that. And in terms of ROE, return on investment, I don't think you get a better return on investment than, for example, naval presence. You got to be there. You got to be there if you want to matter. And it does, you know, distances matter. 
it doesn't matter if something happens and well, we're going to get together, we're going to have some meetings, we're going to get some people, we all agree, we're going to send somebody over there, it's going to take them three weeks to get there, then when they get there, it's going to take them a week to get ready. You need somebody who's there on the scene, like the USS Kearney, like USS Mason, like USS Thomas Hunter, who hears a, hear, hears a call of distress and shows up. I'm here. We're here. We'll chase off some bad guys. And you only get that with presence. Presence has a price all up and down everything. So I don't think the Navy advocates for itself very well at all. They keep they talk to themselves very well. They don't talk to everybody else very well. I was listening to uh, Assistant Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Mahoney, uh, at a conference, actually USNI conference a couple of weeks ago. And I thought his presentation was one of the, there was a great affirmation of sea power and the importance of a Navy and the importance of having a naval capability. I'm, I'm listening to him going, boy, I wish, I wish the CNO would get out there and say it in the same conviction, not, and not apologize for it, not be embarrassed and say, excuse me, but I don't advocate. If somebody gets pissed off about it, fine. If they can't take it, then they're really not very good warriors anyway, are they? So, you know, get out there and advocate for things. Um, and I just, uh, that's that's the, the biggest frustration. I mean, I believe in this stuff. Um, and it's it's important. And, and it's on display right now, every day right now. Uh, how can you beat this? The Navy's making it, the world events are making its own case for them. And um, they just don't do it. And I don't, I don't, I don't get it. And I'm tired I am tired, as as Mallory just said. It's like every year it seems like, well, this year they were holding they were holding back. Now this year they're gonna they never do. And of course, you know, you talk about who makes the decisions. It's a Pentagon decision. It's it's, it's a Pentagon. It goes through the National Security. It goes through the, the White House. Everybody signs off on this. The services don't have that discretion. The services do, however, have to lobby for things inside the building and inside the Beltway. And I don't think they're very effective at it. And other services are better at it. Actually, the, uh, I would, I would just to kind of jump on there. The Air Force has done a fantastic job. Of course, they do of, yeah. of stumping for itself. Uh, and in the last not only that, years. not not only that, but the Secretary of the Air Force has, and he's a great chairman and a great, great champion for for the Air Force. But he has everybody in the Air Force going out and saying the same message. It's not the Secretary said. Then the Navy, it's the secretary said, and everybody else be quiet. Don't talk about stuff. And this this whole theme about you know we're not gonna well we don't we we don't want the bad guys to know what we're doing. Really, if deter, secrecy is not a deterrent, I hate to break this, but if you don't tell people what you're doing and give people some detail and show them some some skin here, they're not going to believe you got anything at all. And the Air Force is out doing that every day. Frank Kendall has got those people talking. They believe in air power. They're on the same page. They're not balkanized like the Navy. It's not these 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 almost childish communities. Well, it's all about you know it, I mean, it's all about aviation and oh no, I'm a submariner and everything's a target. And you know I mean everybody's everybody's in these communities. You don't get that with the Air Force. It's all about air power. And Kendall has those people out there banging the drum for air power all at the same. And they're talking. They talk about programs. They talk about operations. And they're all on the same page. And I look at the Navy and go, if I'm not alone, people come up to me and then go, what's what's with the Navy? 
it's a good comparison to the Air Force because you look at what the Air Force is talking about and doing with their next generation air dominance program. You know, they put information out there and like you said about programs specifically on that one. And the Navy has said nothing about what its next generation air dominance program looks like. We know very little. Um, so much so that they classified the R&D dollars for three budget cycles. So I think that's just a I think that just illustrates the point that there's a very different approaches going on between the services. I can just jump in real quick before I, I hop off. I think the other thing that um, that's been interesting, specifically looking at what's coming out of uh, the Red Sea with Israel and Hamas, is this idea of the narrative that DOD in the White House is spinning pretty hard that doesn't match up with reality. Um, so you see a lot of them saying the conflict is not is not expanding beyond Israel and, Ham and Hamas. But then you have a bunch of U.S. coalition forces being attacked that started right after those attacks. And they'll continue to say, well, we've always been out there with our defeat ISIS uh, mission. So those aren't necessarily related. But then you have the uh, attacks in the Red Sea and the Houthis are saying we are doing this because we are supporting our Palestinian brothers in arms. And the White House messaging and the DOD messaging is the conflict hasn't expanded beyond Israel and Hamas. But then you have Hudner and Mason and Carney shooting down. And a little bit of that spot message from the from the Navy was kind of going against what that narrative is to say, look how like how awesome Carney is, but look how many times it's attacking these drones that are getting that are flying over it. And I think if you can get the Navy to to push back a little bit more against that and show what's happening, then we'll see more of the reality. But it's a pretty strong narrative that's coming out of the White House and the DOD right now, which I don't know how that's affecting the rest of the, you know, what's happening over in Westpac or the rest of the Navy's budget. But that's definitely something that they're fighting against. Well, this is I mean, that's the challenge, right? I mean, the the, the way that they are dealing with um, the Red Sea and even I would say um, what we're having to support in um, Ukraine, I don't think it matches what the the leadership in the Pentagon and the White House, the, it doesn't match the direction that they'd like to take DOD. So they're trying very hard to um, kind of, you know, reformulate that, right? We talked about this on the our podcast, our year-end podcast with Vago. I mean, they're kind of between a rock and a hard place. They're fighting uh, and and supplying a very traditional conflict while, while talking about um, fighting a new conflict. Um, and it, there's not enough money and there's not enough bandwidth uh, to to go around. So something's going to have to give. As for the messaging, it, it's I will tell you personally, it's disappointing. There's a guy over at the White House that knows what right looks like. He taught a generation of joint communicators how to communicate. And he's the one that's telling them to be quiet. Um, so hopefully his phone continues to ring from his mentees um, as they, you know, continue to tell him, let us tell the DOD story. Um, but until that changes, I, I think you're going to see more of the same in 24. I was hoping that was um, a segue into a replicator initiative conversation. Um, <laughs> well, uh, I mean, that's but, oh, <laughs> what is what uh, there's a there's a good one. It's replicator. We can't really tell you what it is. And this is probably the last time we're going to say anything in the open about it. But rest assured, it's going to be really great. We're going to do a lot of cool stuff. Wow. I feel a lot better. Don't you? Like no, Project Overmatch. Wow, Project Overmatch. Oh yeah, I haven't heard What's about that? Project Let's Overmatch. Talk about some details. 
uh, you know, all these, all they throw out these buzzwords. We're all, oh, well, they're doing something. And then they'll say, and if you're asking about, you know, what are we doing? I'll point you to Project Overmatch. Really? What is that? Describe, please. Please, the floor is yours. I still can't describe it. I, I haven't heard anybody describe it yet. It's our latest initiative. It's really great. It's all about, yeah. Okay. Well, I really don't, you know, security is one thing, but you, you have to figure out you can't hide behind the veil of security all the time. That's classified. I can't talk about this. Okay. Well, we know that there's a lot of things you can't talk about and that's as that's as it should be. But there's also a, a sense that says you need to find a way to communicate this stuff and not give away the farm. Let's close out with, with, with the, maybe a prediction or two or something to look for in the, in the, in the, in the, in the coming year, Mallory, let's start with you. So 2024, it's almost here. What's going to happen? Well, we're going to have a Taiwan election, as I said, and I don't know what's going to happen there, but uh, that'll be something to watch. I think, I mean, if we're getting, we're, I heard we may be getting an on-time budget from the Pentagon. So, you know, if we have the budget, I guess maybe a budget prediction could be useful. Uh, I think the Navy and the Marine Corps are going to keep duking it out over amphibs. I don't think that fight's over. Um I think it's going to keep, I, I think the amphibs are going to keep being a, a bill payer. And I'm skeptical that this landing ship medium is going to get out from underneath whatever requirements uh, creep it's going through. I think that's going to continue to be a problem. Sam? Uh, I think that in 2024, we're going to see a really hard conversation about the cost of munitions. I think the lessons that we've got from the Red Sea and then the the trade-offs that you would have in a Taiwan invasion scenario where you run out of munitions pretty early on in the conflict, you've run up and, the score at the Ukraine. first half. And Ukraine. I think I think we're gonna have I, I think there needs to be a really I think there's going to be a really hard kind of open public question of uh, conversation about this. And I think you know, part of it is going to be politicized over the kind of the ongoing negotiations between the Democrats and the Republicans for uh, additional Ukraine and um, Israel supplemental funding. But it's going to come down to can we afford an SM6 that costs, what, $2 million? I forget. I forget. It's four. Four. SM6 costs $4 million? Yes, it does. Jeez. All right. So SM6 costs it up. <laughs> so, so your flyaway cost for SM6 is like, Four million dollars, and this is supposed to be the affordable missile, right? Um, plus, what do you what do you do with these sort of kind of dynamic, for lack of a better term, swarm threats that are emerging, right? I mean, I think you know if you would look at our sister publication proceedings, people have been clanging the bell, going like these are coming. Um, now they're here. And what's the tool that we have to go after uh, a Shahid 136? It's an SM2 missile. That's what, $2 million a missile? Costs more than a year to produce? They don't even make them anymore? So so that's, I think, 24 is going to be the real, the real, real question is, okay, shipbuilding is its own thing, but munitions are just, just the, the, the cost calculations for them are out of control. Javella, how about you? I worry that you're going to see a U.S. Navy ship get hit by something in the Red Sea. 
Um, I think that uh, the the law of averages catches up, uh, and I think that that's going to force a larger discussion um, about how and where and we use naval forces. Um, and you know, you'll have a lot of the same questions that came out of the Fitz and McCain, but maybe in a in a bit of a different context about you know, did they have the right tools? Did they have the right ROE? Um, and, um, I hope I'm wrong, but that, that's what I worry about, uh, just on the path that, that we're going down. I sort of think that, um, one of the things we're not going to hear about is unmanned. And I don't know why, uh, the U S Navy just carried out the most ambitious unmanned surface ship deployment. Anybody's even thought about, and they took four vessels. They sailed them across the entire Pacific ocean from California to Hawaii to to Guam to Japan to Australia, and now they're coming home, and nobody's done anything like this, and but they've not talked about it very much. Um, they've declined a lot of requests for interviews. They've done some, but not not nearly to meet the demand. Um, the there they talk about all this experimentation, and uh, which is ridiculous. I think we've been experimenting a lot longer than uh, probably was necessary. These things have evolved into becoming operational assets, as has been demonstrated in the Persian Gulf, is being demonstrated all over the Ukraine conflict. And uh, the days for experimentation are long gone. So I feel like, you know, failure to launch. It's like it's like your 31-year-old son still living in the basement. You know, it's just get out of the house. Um, don't care anymore. Um, the Navy is not coordinated in terms of uh, a lot of these things. And that's, that's all the, that's AV, it's uh, aerial surface and under underwater. Um, Fourth fleet does a whole bunch of stuff. They do what they do. Third fleet has been doing some stuff. They do what they do. Sixth fleet has been doing, I'm sorry, fifth fleet has been doing its stuff. They do what they do. They're all very different. They all went out to seventh fleet. Seventh fleet hadn't been paying attention to any, any of it. Like, I'm sorry. It's like starting over again. There's no coordination. Nobody's in charge. Nobody's in the middle. Um, it's balkanized. It's split. I don't know what they're doing. There's too many people who really don't know what they're talking about in this. And it, you're, you're, what you're getting about is inaction. And I, I truly don't understand it. Um, I think those four ships are coming home and that, you know, I don't, I don't see anything else happening. There's nothing in the budget. Um, the surface vessel programs, large and uh, medium, uh, unmanned service vessels, the, those programs are not happening. They're just not happening. And uh, you can point to anything you want, but um, the effort's not there. The Navy just took delivery of the Orca, the great big underwater um, puppy that is years and years behind and millions and millions over budget and has been canceled from six platforms down to one, the one that they have. Uh, stuff is just not happening. Uh, aviation is happening. Although MQ-25, the uh, the unmanned carrier-based refueler, hello, hola, I don't hear nothing. I don't hear nothing. No news about that. It means not, there's nothing good news to nothing good to say about it. That program's got to be in trouble, and um, that's going to affect the the air wing of the future, which is already in trouble anyway. So that's that's my happy prediction. Other than that, I think the the Navy's ending on a high note. Just you know, they are showing that they do what they do. And that that sea power and maritime power are important. They affect things, um, you know. Rerouting ships around the Red Sea from the Red Sea to go around Africa is going to cost money. It's going to hit people in their pocketbooks. It's going to hit availability. 
and you know sea power is not not warships and not destroyers the whole point about sea power is to is to let maritime commerce flow that's really the whole point of it and it, if it ain't flowing because of a lack of sea power or something else um people are going to find out well on that festive happy note um i want to i want to thank uh thank our friends at uh, usni news and they are our friends and colleagues uh sam legron mallory shelburne and uh, heather mongilio for joining us today you guys are great we always love talking with you we always love working with you and of course my partner chris Cervello. thank you very much and uh, thanks for joining us now hear this now hear this all right and now mr Cervello with some thoughts about the sacrifices of those who serve as we just discussed, it's been a very busy year with lots of ups and downs for the Naval Service. It's easy to be critical of the decisions made by senior leaders or even criticize an individual for not doing it the way it used to be done. It may even sound like we think we know best or could do it better. Let me assure you that that is absolutely not the case. Chris and I, as well as our guests, have an amazing respect for the Naval Service and the men and women who keep the country's maritime might afloat. While we admire their sacrifice year-round, the admiration is especially realized at this time of year. Being deployed and away from your family and friends is hard. Being deployed over the holidays sucks. After we post this podcast tonight, our team will start to unwind, have a holiday cocktail, and begin really to celebrate Christmas with the fam. That will not be the case for tens of thousands of men and women who are on call around the globe this holiday season. They will work multiple shifts, some will stand combat watches, others may even come under direct fire from America's adversaries. We would like to thank those folks for their hard work, for rising to the occasion every time something new is asked of them, and for their sacrifice so that our family can have a safe and merry Christmas. God bless the United States and all who keep us free. Merry Christmas and happy holidays from the Cavus Ships Podcast. Amen, brother. Well, folks, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Moradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. The Cavishers podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is the designer and operator of the U.S. Navy's live virtual constructive training enterprise, the largest LVC enterprise in the U.S. Department of Defense. HII, delivering the advantage. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, and thanks for listening, and bye-bye. Hey.